Hey, it's John from CityCast. If you're in the mood to pamper yourself a little bit this week while supporting cruelty-free products, you should check out Bone Cur Home and Wellness. It's the best place in Portland to find everything from chic home decor to cannabis accessories. They've got a curated collection of vegan and cruelty-free home goods and wellness products because their name is French for kind heart, after all. You'll get a 20% discount on your first order when you sign up for emails this week at boncoeur.net. That's B-O-N-C-O-E-U-R.net. And use the code BONECURCITYCAST20. I feel like whenever we talk about crime or homeless encampments downtown, the conversations tend to revolve around Old Town. As some of you might know, Old Town is Portland's official Chinatown, but because of historic city neglect and rising crime, rising rents, and a lot less foot traffic, many businesses were forced to relocate. Plus, since the pandemic, this struggling district has seen a lot more people living on the streets. So today on the show, we're talking with Scott Kerman, executive director of Blanchet House, a social services organization in the heart of Old Town. Scott has a ground level view of what the city is currently doing to help Old Town come back. And he's gonna tell us what's working and what isn't. It's Monday, February 6, 2023. Get ready for our city's daily conversation. I'm Claudia Meza, and this is CityCast Portland. Thanks for joining us today, Scott. I have a lot of questions for you uh, regarding um, not only your organization, but also the state of Old Town. So, like, what do you want Portlanders to know about Old Town right now? Well, Old Town is best known in, in Portland as an entertainment district. I mean, it really comes alive at night. And fortunately, that business is on an upswing. They're reporting really good uh, crowds of people. There's greater police presence, which has really helped um, the safety at night because for a while there last year, there were shootings and, and other events that you know were really scary and, and violent and devastating. And um, it's been a lot better. Uh, but we also just had, um, we're, in, we're in Lunar New Year, uh, Chinese New Year um, at the Lansu um, Garden. And they had record crowds, despite temperatures in the 20s, for their festivities, including their um, Lunar New Year parade. Mm -hmm. So I think we're starting to see um, crowds coming back downtown and to Old Town and to the riverfront for festivals and special occasions. But we're not necessarily, I think I just saw we're still at about 60% of our pre-pandemic population in terms of downtown. So I think until we see a workforce come back to downtown or the downtown reinvents itself, we'll probably still see a um, sort of a good and a bad when it comes to crowds downtown. Yeah. The feelings of people who are thinking about downtown and Old Town, it's two separate areas too. You know, Old Town is very specific. Mm -hmm. It used to be Old Town Chinatown. I feel like what people are concerned about really are the camps that have come up, you know, across downtown. But I feel like Old Town in particular has always had I remember maybe six or seven years ago, I forget the name of the village, but there was a huge encampment there. Do you remember that, Scott? I do. I I wasn't at Blanchet at the time, but I do remember that. You know, interestingly, so I came to Blanchet House about three and a half years ago. And when I was hired, one of the things I was asked to do was to be thinking strategically about the future of our meal service program. 
because Old Town was no longer the epicenter of our houseless population at that time. It had moved to other areas of Portland. It had become more spread out. But, you know, even before the pandemic, there, there was a more of a balance to the community, I think, in terms of people who were are houseless and unsheltered. I think what we're seeing in terms of a difference in Old Town and, and really throughout Portland right now in our houseless community is an elevated level of, of mental illness. And so I think it's more of a, a, a mental illness problem than necessarily a houseless problem right now. Right. For people who maybe just moved to Portland or just not understanding what's going on with downtown is uh, it, it was a lot livelier. There were a lot of more people, a lot more tourists down there. Mm-hmm. And now post pandemic, it's almost like Old Town became a hub again for a lot of houseless camps and people who weren't houseless started to feel unsafe. And there's definitely like different reasons for that. And I think most of us can agree that houseless people just in general, it's not that they're unsafe or threatening. There's just a lot of mental illness. But also when there's these camps where maybe the police isn't really around as well because they're busy doing something else, a lot of crime could also be hidden within those walls, which is mainly unsafe for the houseless people, but also for anyone that could be walking around. What would you say to people that think that service providers like Blanchet House or Sisters of the Road that focus on like houseless communities, what would you what would you say to them that if they're just like, well, this is the reason why Portland has an increase in houseless camps within that area because these two organizations are feeding them and providing services, and of course they're going to congregate where the services are. I think it's akin to saying um, there are more injured people in our community because they're more urgent cares. I mean, I I think what we do is alleviate suffering. Mm -hmm. We're not creating the suffering. The suffering is is there. And so what you're seeing is is not a problem caused by places that are are feeding people and, and handing out clothing. It's a problem that there's a lack of housing. There's just insufficient housing in Portland and and actually across Oregon to meet the need. Um, That's just data science. And getting back to the issue of mental illness and and drug abuse uh, and addiction, uh, we don't have sufficient services to that, right? It's well known that that Oregon ranks um, 50th or 49th in so many categories having to do with uh, mental health care and addiction services. And then we rank at the top of lists when it comes to people who need these kinds of services, right? So that's an impossible dynamic. Um, So what do we think is going to be the effect of that kind of imbalance? Well, just look outside. Mm -hmm. Um, That's the impact. We have people with significant mental illness who are untreated and literally just wandering the streets. And what's worse is they're self-medicating with substances that are exacerbating their mental illness, um, the P2P meth and fentanyl. And so it's a, it's, a, it's a deadly combination of factors right now. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pause you right there because I feel like we've heard rumors about how everyone in um, organizations that work with at-risk communities, they've been ringing the alarm like, hey, these aren't the same drugs that people were taking, you know, even five years ago. These drugs are insane and they're immediate, they're like inducing psychosis at such a rate that that's another reason why people who need mental health services, why that population is increasing. So just to, you know, piggyback off that thought, because you're saying, well, there aren't enough houses. But I know that you yourself have a understanding that if you were just to give keys to someone with psychosis and a house, they're not going to stay there. 
That's correct. And, and you know, I do also want to point out that Blanche also, also runs transitional housing programs. But, you know, our concern is when we observe the people that, that we're feeding, and these are people that we feed every day, three times a day, six days a week, and have been doing so for, for many months, if not years, they have spiraled so far down from where they were just three years ago, two years ago, um, that we wonder if they're not going to need um, something close to 24-7 care, at least until they can get to a place where they can function with, with less support. I mean, there's a lot of damage. And what would that take? Would that be like a detox? Would that be more of, I mean, 24-hour care, that's really expensive if it's like on a state budget. Like, mm-hmm. what are you foreseeing? Because, you know, a lot of houseless communities don't want to go inside. Right. Because it, it, there's a lot of people who have PTSD. There's a lot of, I mean, it makes sense. You're just like, you need to feel like you can run away at any point. So what needs to happen then? Like, what is that middle transition looking like? Right. From a person who has mental health issues, drug issues, needs a house, to they are a functioning person in society that is housed. Right. That, that, I mean, it's a really important question. And I think we have to establish at the onset, we have to we have to think about this with a little bit more nuance, because we're talking about a very diverse community of right. people who are houseless or housing insecure. And so there's certainly a population of people within our housing insecure and houseless community who can do very well in, in independent um, circumstances. In fact, we're succeeding and perhaps lost their housing uh, because of a variety of factors. It could be rent, it could be a loss of job, it could be a tragedy, it could be domestic violence. Right. If they can be rehoused and rehoused rapidly, would be able to function just great. Um, now, we're also talking about then a chronically homeless community who it is more difficult to successfully rehouse them, to find shelter for them. Um, because of their trauma. Right. You talked about the, the PTSD that can develop, um, the fact that people feel very anxious in indoor spaces, especially if they're crowded. And so, you know, our message to our local and state leaders is that we need to be thinking about a diverse array of shelter and housing opportunities for people. Now, back to your original question, what about the individuals who have been so traumatized, whose mental illness is so profound, um, what do we do for them? Um, that's a really hard question to answer because we just don't necessarily have the services that they need. Do I believe expanding the state hospital and institutionalizing people is the answer? Probably not. Okay. <laughs> um, do I wish we had more therapeutic and progressive environments for people with mental illness? Absolutely. Now, I, I do have to say, I am not a mental health expert, and, and nor am I trying to pass myself off as right. one. But we have these people, <laughs> right, in our in our world. And what I would hope is that we can maybe turn a corner and think more broadly about mental health services um, and have a, a more empathetic and compassionate understanding of the role trauma has played in these people's lives, why they're on the street in the first place, uh, often links to the trauma that they've experienced. And sometimes when we talk to them, we find that that trauma occurred when when they were children. There is certainly transgenerational trauma that exists. Um, People who grew up in communities marked by generational poverty 
and um, sometimes the challenges and abuses that can occur in that kind of environment. Yeah. And, 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 and maybe thought they never really even had a chance. Yeah. Let's take a quick break here. And when we come back, I want to ask you uh, about how the city's 90-day reset plan has worked out in Old Town. Let's just talk about real quick the 90-day reset plan that happened in Old Town where they just sort of swept everyone. They, they cleaned the graffiti off. You know, the police bureau has decided to put an entertainment detail. That's what they're calling it. So there's a lot of policing. And to me, that seems like counterintuitive to the things that do work. I mean, it's making it so there's a balance between business and the houseless community. But like, how do you feel about these actions? Do you think at the end it's going to get us where we need to go? Or do you think it's like uh, something that is necessary now because we need these businesses to exist in that area? Um, are the sweeps effective? In my opinion, no. And they're not effective for a, a number of different ways. Uh, one, again, we have to stop thinking of a houseless community as a monolith. When they come through and sweep, and they offer shelter to people who are being swept, the folks who are, are more able to care for themselves, who, who have more capacity for self-sufficiency, are able to either accept that shelter or relocate to other neighborhoods. The people who aren't, um, the people who are addicted, the people who are not very self-sufficient, who have a lot of high mental health needs, they're not able to take advantage of the shelter for a variety of reasons, often because they don't want to, because they don't feel safe in those environments. So what you're left with then in that community are unsheltered people with high needs, often high mental health and high addiction needs. And that throws off the balance and the ecosystem that existed. Right. So I don't think sweeps help. I, I've called them tornadoes in the past because it feels like it, it sort of destroys the structures, the tents, their clothing and, and possessions are gone, but the people remain. And then they're often left without anything. You know, as to um, increased public safety presence for the entertainment district at night, I know it's it's a big help to the people who own the businesses and, and a big help to the people who enjoy these services. And so I think it seems that it's it's helping people. We're not seeing a negative effect on our unhoused population. You know, it's important to remember that unhoused people also feel a lack of safety. We've yes. recently had to increase our um, security presence in our cafe. And we're hearing from a lot of people who are enjoying our services that they're actually thankful for that. Increased security presence certainly has not dissuaded people from coming to services. Um, and we're still making sure that all of our reactions to people, um, including people who are acting with a, with a lot of hostility and aggression, um, we want to be trauma-informed. We want to help people sort of resolve whatever is troubling them at that moment because th they may show up and often do show up for us the next day completely different. Yeah. And Scott, the thing, I mean, the other thing is that there's so many people listening right now that are just like, that's me, but I somehow didn't end up in the streets because a lot of us have multi-generational trauma and like they can empathize to a certain point, but then they're just like, but... I'm traumatized and that's not me. So why can't they just, you know what I'm saying? Like, well, why can't they get over it? Because I got over it. Right. There are certainly people with trauma in our community who are not houseless, who are not food insecure. Absolutely true. In fact, there's probably nary a person out there who hasn't experienced some trauma in their life. And then maybe be introspective about that. 
you know, why are you relatively stable compared to somebody else? What supports did you have in your life? I mean, I was hospitalized last year with a pretty significant illness. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it was it was scary there for a moment, and it was very traumatic. Um, but here's the trauma I didn't have to experience. During that extended hospitalization, I didn't have to worry I was going to lose my job. And I didn't have to worry about how I was going to pay for my medical bills because I had insurance. And I didn't have to worry about who was going to care for our pets because we had a lot of friends and neighbors who, who stood up and like took in our dog, right? right. So that's a lot of blessings. Right. A lot of people don't have that. Somebody told me once, and perhaps we'll end with this, when you're poor, I mean, and we're talking about serious poverty, chances are everybody else you know is poor and in, in, a, in a state of serious poverty. So where do you go for help? Who's able to help you in your time of need? And the answer, sadly, often is no one. Um, and so it doesn't take a lot. There are not a lot of dominoes that have to fall in a person's life before they're on the street. Uh, I'm sure for a lot of people listening to this, count the dominoes that would have to fall in your life before you're forced to sleep in your car. And that's the difference. Thank you, Scott. I really appreciate you answering all my questions uh, so open-mindedly and uh, for giving us so much information. Also, thank you for all your work. Yeah, it's a blessing and a privilege to do this work. And now for your microdose of news. So right after we taped with Scott, we got some big news about a new plan to house hundreds of homeless people in downtown Portland. On Friday, County Chair Jessica Vega-Peterson announced a new initiative called Housing Multnomah Now. She says it aims to spend $14 million in the next year to help move 300 people into apartments. That's some good news. Also, a state arbiter has put Portland Police Union President Brian Hunziker back on the job after deciding his firing was political. Now, you might remember that Hunziker was fired last year after he leaked a false report linking former city commissioner Joanne Hardesty to a hit-and-run accident that she had nothing to do with. Now, Hardesty had been deeply critical of the Portland police before Hunziker leaked his false report. So yeah, something there was political. Not quite sure it was his firing. Plus an update to a story we mentioned last week about the now-closed Facebook group PDX Stolen Cars. The group had been a resource for countless Portlanders after the police shut down their own auto theft division in 2006. But volunteers have come to the rescue again. They're starting a new Facebook group, PDX Stolen Car Recovery, that will just focus on reconnecting abandoned stolen cars with their owners. That's all for today here on CityCast Portland. If you enjoyed the show, why not tell a friend, rate it, leave us a review, or subscribe to our morning newsletter, Hey Portland. We'll be back tomorrow morning with even more from around the city. Until then, see you at Slim's. <laughs>